today. Malcolm Honline is Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. He joins us for the weekly update here on a Friday morning Erev Shabbos. Erev Shabbos Chazon, really essentially Erev Tishabov. Mr. Honline, welcome back to JM in the AM. Thank you very much. And we will get to uh, Malcolm's uh, Tishabov message toward the end of our conversation. We wouldn't allow uh, for this uh, segment to end without a message um, from Malcolm regarding the Jewish people and the upcoming observance, which begins uh, tomorrow night. I don't know if you've seen it yet, because I think it was posted just before we hit the air this morning, but there's an, um, I think, an, um, and I, I, I'm sorry for praising the New York Times, <laughs> but, uh, you know, things you don't want to happen happen during the nine days, so I'm sorry, sorry for praising the New York Times. But um, this article uh, about these uh, lost uh, tapes, uh, lost uh, audio and video of David Ben-Gurion in an interview done um, uh, back in the 70s with him, uh, just fascinating. The article's fascinating. The clips that they already have up on their site, fascinating. I I posted this morning that this article gave me even more insight into the modesty and leadership qualities of the man. You know, he insisted, after being Prime Minister of Israel, of eating lunch in the communal dining room down in Stabokar every single day. And he insisted on doing a job like everybody else in the community, and they had to make sure to give him an easy job, because after all, he was the former Prime Minister. There, there was a modesty and yet a leadership to him that I think was unmatched by, by anybody else we've seen in modern Jewish history. You agree with me? Are you saying that the leaders today are different than that? Well, <laughs> I don't know if they would be Look, doing... I think you're right. There, It's an expression of his commitment and how he viewed himself, and it was reflected in many other things, but uh, things that they did and how they lived and the simplicity uh, about how they lived. I don't think anybody brought any charges of corruption against him. And uh, today we just see everywhere in the world, every democracy, where there are so many accusations, charges, counter-charges, um, I guess the simplicity and the, the clarity from then. Maybe if we were uh, examining in the time that it took place, it would make look differently. Yeah, but, I guess that's true, but I don't know. The way he, as somebody who didn't always have the greatest appreciation for you know observance and tradition, the way he speaks about the prophet Jeremiah, the way he speaks about the national message, which we often don't get. You know, even though we have national leaders, I'm referring to leaders in Israel at the moment, we have national leaders and international leaders as well who, who are able to convey a message. There is a message of national, uh, a national message rather, that he conveyed that, again, you may be right, it was, you know, the times made the man, so to speak. But I, I, I have a copy of a letter that someone uh, gave me from an auction um, of Ben-Gurion writing to his, uh, his uh, minister of education in which he talks about that he has no fear of religious education, of giving people uh, from education, and sort of instructing him not to be worried about it and uh, to support it. Amazing. In our kibbutz, he said, I told them my name is David, not Ben-Gurion. So every morning I came to see what David has to do, and I went to do the work. This is what our prophet said, to serve as an example to other people. Come on, Malcolm. You know, <laughs> we don't have this anymore these days. Isn't that what you do every day? We all do every day. 
Yeah, well, maybe in a different way, but I don't know. You're to everybody in the world. Hmm. Thank you. Thank you for that boost of confidence. I appreciate it. Um, You've been mentioning, oh, before we talk about the election, let me just mention, uh, and I'm sure you'll join me in wishing a mazel tov, on Tuesday, the 50,000th ole. The 50,000th Ola on the Nefesh Benefesh program, I know you're a big fan of Nefesh Benefesh, uh, will be uh, heading to Israel. The 50,000th Ola will be on that plane, the August flight that leaves Tuesday from JFK Airport to Ben Gurion. Uh, a pretty amazing accomplishment. Uh, 75 IDF soldiers are included among the 233 immigrants who are heading to Israel on Tuesday. What do you think of those two pieces of information? Very encouraging, especially at a time when everybody tells us the alienation of youth. You see this level of commitment that comes through as these Chaylin uh, Bodedim, the lone soldiers, who are a remarkable phenomenon and, uh, uh, you know, a, a testament to their parents, their education, and them. And 50,000, that's a pretty amazing number. You've been... Emph- yeah, I'm sorry? No, it is. Yeah, that's for sure. You've been emphasizing to us how there are elections we should be paying careful attention to outside of the Trump-Hillary election, which is coming up in November and which is continuing to fascinate the American people and the people worldwide. Um, the I don't know if you have a pen and paper in front of you, but uh, you may want to take a couple of notes. I'd love to get your comments on these. The Jerusalem Post has a uh, what I think is a really good list of... Um, United States election races that the Jewish community should be closely watching in 2016. If you don't mind, I just want to run through them quickly. And uh, if you have a comment on any of them, uh, let us know what you think. Uh, The first one they write about is replacing Barbara Boxer, U.S. Senator from California. And I would guess that she would be considered to be a friend, certainly, uh, over the years. So that's one uh, that we're watching very closely. Uh, Lois Franklin and Ted Deutsch swapping seats in the United House in the U.S. House, Florida's 21st and 22nd Congressional District. There's been a redistricti- redistricting there, and two of the 18 Jewish members of the House are set to swap seats in Congress. Marco Rubio's election campaign down in uh, Florida for U.S. Senator. That is one that, uh, again, I, I would guess we consider him a friend. Am I right, Malcolm? Absolutely. McCain and Kirkpatrick, that's the one for Senate in Arizona, and it looks like that race is really heating up. Um, Bob Dold and Brad Schneider, which I didn't know about this one, the U.S. House and Illinois' 10th Congressional District. Um, Lee Zeldin is running for re-election, the only Jewish Republican in Congress. He's running for re-election in the 1st Congressional District in New York. That's out on Long Island, and he's got a big challenge from uh, Anna Trone-Holst. Um, and two more, Mark Kirk versus Tammy Duckworth for U.S. Senate in Illinois. The the Jerusalem Post puts it as a Senate race that's a battle between APAC and J Street. Kirk, a darling of the APAC crowd, facing a popular challenger in Duckworth who waxed off J Street's successes in lobbying for the Iran deal at its Democratic National Convention reception last month. What do you think of that one? Is that a good description, APAC versus J Street in that race? That's a colorful one. Okay, <laughs> and and of course Debbie Wasserman Schultz. Uh, everyone watching closely, if she could be reelected down in Florida's twenty third, um, because of the recent uh, uh, doings at the Democratic National Convention, and she being tossed into the spotlight, not for the most positive of reasons. Anything uh, specific you want to tell us about any of these, or just a general comment about the attention we should be paying to these and other quote unquote smaller races? 
Well, I think there are a number of other races that are very important, but these are amongst the most important. Kelly Ayat is another one in New Hampshire, also very strong supporter of Israel. Kirk, a great hero in, in terms of taking many initiatives. Uh, Lee Zeldin, in the brief time he's been there, uh, certainly others, McCain, uh, uh, Marco Rubio, Ted Deutsch, uh, and, and Lois Frankel, both are, uh, Ted Deutsch is a member of the Foreign Relations Committee and a terrific uh, supporter. So the, uh, all of them uh, are important races, and it's the message I've been trying to communicate, as you know, and that is that uh, um, all the obsession with the presidential race has obscured the important races for us in Congress. And there are, uh, you know, great friends up for re-election. There are open races where you have uh, some stark differences between the candidates, so people should examine each one of them, study them. Obviously, I can't endorse, and I don't endorse, and I uh, don't want to imply we have uh, uh, many important people running. And in some cases, both candidates are, are supportive. But people really have to look into the races. Congress has always been the bedrock of support. And we have to make sure that support for Israel is bipartisan, and continues to be uh, that there continues to be leadership on both sides of the aisle in support of Israel, and that the um, and that people not be, uh, lose sight of the significance of these elections because they're so focused, and the media is so focused, and everybody on the presidential election. Yeah. There are track records out there, as you've indicated, and uh, records to examine. Obviously, especially among the incumbents, but even those who are not necessarily incumbents, incumbents have uh, there are indications of how they would view Israel's security. And many take, have put out position papers that people could go and find. Right, and and U.S.-Israel relationships in general. So, uh, at, no matter where you are, and I know people from many different states tune in. No matter where you are, pay careful attention to these elections. And every race counts. Right. Nobody should think that take for granted any single race. Because there may be a very light turnout. There could be in different sex, sex, sectors, lighter turnout. Every vote will count. And it's funny, not not that you're one who I don't I don't think you're one who's able to predict the future. You've indicated in the past that that's a well, very I've done it many times. But yeah, yeah, that's a very difficult task for you. But you've sort of been leading us down this road that you I don't know that you knew the presidential race would either not be taken as seriously as it was a couple of months ago, or that it would turn into more of a circus-like atmosphere, and uh, you've tried to maintain our focus on, you know, the, the races that have not turned into a circus-like Absolutely atmosphere. Absolutely right. Yeah, so kudos to you on that. Uh, a war of words has erupted between groups affiliated with the Black Lives Matter movement and pro-Israel commentators over the characterization of Israel in their policy document released last week. The policy platform titled A Vision for Black Lives is a wide-spanning document that was drafted by more than 50 organizations known as the Movement for Black Lives. It goes beyond criminal justice and touches on many issues, including education and economics. In the Invest, Divest section of the platform, the group criticizes the U.S. government providing military aid to Israel. The quote is, the U.S. justifies and advances the global war on terror via its alliance with Israel and its complicit in the genocide taking place against the Palestinian people. Israel is an apartheid state with over 50 laws in the books that sanction discrimination against the Palestinian people. How did the Black Lives Matter movement get to this point where they are uh, uh, condemning Israel and making Israel such an important part of their platform? Well, I think it's the it's something we warned about. That they call it sectionality, where the you know all of the anti-Israel movements uh, identified as BDS, but it's 
not BDS, it's anti-Israel and anti-Semitic movements that um, uh, have uh, latched on to these causes. Remember, even at Ferguson in Missouri, we saw signs at the demonstrations where people from outside of Ferguson came with signs, Free Palestine. And this has been true at the demonstrations in Washington and other places unrelated to international, let alone the Palestinian issue, where they have tried to to um, create a commonality of interest, and they're doing it on campuses as well. This is uh, this is an outgrowth of that, a reflection of that. And I think what's important here is for black leaders to comment on the language they use when terms like genocide are used against Israel and apartheid, uh, and uh, certainly in a, uh, of accusing it of being an apartheid state. Uh, so I think that it's not the Jewish community. You know, it's very easy. People issue condemnations because it's easy, but it's it's a time when we should be hearing from black leaders saying this kind of language is unacceptable. And, and while there might be legitimate concerns that they identify with it in, in the, the concerns that, that gave rise to Black Lives Matter, that this is uh, an abuse and, and uh, should come out to, to draw the distinction and... and um, show how they're being manipulated. I don't know if there are any major pro-Israel supporters among the Black Lives Matter movement who now have to, you know, now that this is public information or becoming more well-known, have to make decisions about, you know, which way to go or how to act. I mean, have you heard of any of the of that of that conflict? Uh, I think the, that there are a lot of leaders who have identified with the movement, even if, whether they're members or, or founders or anything. No, I don't know. But, but have certainly spoken out or identified in one way or another and and for those who care about that cause, they ought to be in the forefront of the effort to uh, avoid its complication and, and tying it into to anti-Semitic uh, tropes and, and anti-Israel uh, charges. And I think you know that's that's really the responsibility of those who who are, are involved, or those who support it, or those who have influence in those communities, it's not going to be, the, you know, Jewish leaders who are, who are going to change anybody's mind. It has to come from within that community. That's true. It's America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program. Heard on listeners sponsored WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope, Rockland County at 91.9 on the FM dial broadcasting live. Sonia and Robert Gold Studios in Jersey City, New Jersey, around the world on the web, jmnam.org. And, of course, on the NSN app, Erev Shabbos Chazon, essentially Erev Tishabov for us here at JM and the AM. All international humanitarian organizations need to immediately halt all aid money to Gaza until it can be proven that the money isn't being squandered by Hamas. This said by a leading Christian Zionist. The enemy of the people of Gaza is Hamas, not Israel. Hamas has hijacked the coastal strip and rules over its people with an iron fist. For decades, the leadership of Hamas has robbed its people of aid money. This according to Special Envoy to the U.N., Lori Kadoza Moore, the time has come to halt all aid money into the Gaza Strip as long as Hamas is in control. Lori's been on this show before. Many people are familiar with where she comes from, but uh, in this case, I don't think she could be considered an alarmist. Malcolm, I think the more evidence we have of this happening, the more chance, in fact, that the U.N. hopefully would question aid to Gaza in cases like this, especially if it's going directly to Hamas. What's your reaction to what she said at the U.N.? Well, this has been a long-term time in, in uh, coming in terms of the recognition. It's not a new issue. And we have discussed many times the corruption of U.N. agencies like UNRWA, uh, which has been true for decades, and how they have 
and not only misspent money, but utilized their agencies, the schools, etc., for incitement, for anti-Israel propaganda, for, for aiding and abetting Hamas and other agencies, and the fact that they used their, their buildings for uh, rocket placement or uh, many other uh, things, let alone the curricula and, and the um, direct involvement in, the sc- in their uh, institutions in fomenting anti-Israel um, activities and, and attitudes. But this is, you know, you, you have uh, several factors here. One, you had a UNDAP, um, United Nations Development Personnel, arrested for diverting money right. and, and taking uh, funds that were meant for other purposes, using it for that. But it's only one agency. So this calls attention to the official agencies. Then you have the NGO, the non-governmental organizations, charitable organizations, some who may have very good intention, but their funds are being uh, misused. And uh, World Vision, which gets about $200 million a year from the United States, they found out that 60% of the funds going to Gaza were diverted to Hamas, and instead of building hospitals, they're building tunnels. Instead of counseling for, uh, for young people, they were providing uh, subsidies to terrorists. And many, many things, and you're talking about millions of dollars, you're not talking uh, you know, about small contributions. And the, uh, that, that money has been held up. Uh, World Vision has stopped its activities in Gaza until it can... Uh, what they say, I think, clarify their situation. The, um, the, uh, we look at the summer camps there. 30,000 kids are in summer camps in Hamas being trained in stabbing, building tunnels, um, use of, of uh, fire weapons, uh, many other things that, that uh, are, are terrible. And, and we know that UNDOP money, for instance, was used, uh, supposedly was used for a naval dock for, for a terrorist to train on, for the maritime unit of the... the um, of, of Hamas. So, you know, people I know don't get the significance and they see and everybody knows that there's corruption yeah. in these kind of agencies. But the fact is that, that there is significant, far, significance far beyond it. And for those, uh, just one other thing who, who always face, you know, we face criticism that Gaza, they don't have water, they don't have electricity, they don't have food. Look at Hamas in advance of the elections that are to be held in municipal elections in the West Bank and Gaza, um, shows Gaza thriving and shows that that's their message. All the new buildings, the neighborhoods, the parks, the lakes, the beachside things, and, and you know, shows Gaza that many of us have, have known, that, you know, the, the <clears throat> boutique stores overflowing with goods, as opposed to the starving image, which they, when, when that's in their interest, that they project that. <laughs> Unbelievable, yeah, and I'm sure you heard about the uh, the tunnel collapse this week near Gaza City. Thank God there should be many more, but the, y- yes, this is uh, we've had I think three or four in the last uh, couple months of incidents where uh, somebody was was uh, hurt, and and all of this comes at a time when you have increasing evidence of of ISIS working with with Hamas. And would be more the more reason that one would assume people would be careful about any funds that go in. You know, the Egyptians are all all the time um, screaming about this and about the the, the relationship. You know, that Hamas uh, takes in the soldiers, ISIS soldiers, to be treated in their hospitals in Gaza. They do training there. There is a there are uh, intricate relationships between ISIS Sinai and them. And, and by the way, an interesting sidelight that we found out this week that ISIS in Sinai, ISIS Sinai province, they're called, have been digging up German-era 
landmines. And supposedly there are about 17,000 landmines left in northwest Egypt near where the battle for uh, Alamein took place in 1942. That, that's and in the Sinai or in Egypt itself? In, in Sinai. Wow. And there were three million of them. The, the Egyptian government since 1980 has been removing them, and they pay local tribesmen to dig them out. Nobody else wants to touch them. Was it, e- was, the, it, uh, was it even an issue after the Six-Day War? Was it even an issue for Israel? Well, there were areas where there was an issue near it, close to the Israeli border, but this is... Uh, this is clo- this is near Egypt. It's along the Egyptian border, and the the Iran Hamas ISIS axis, which is the part of the drive of Iran for hegemony. We see it developing. You see the uh, cooperation for training, for weapons, for military equipment uh, between them, and the um, th- this is. Th- and while they put more emphasis on Iraq and Syria and Lebanon, and less. On this, and they also because the you know the contentious relationship they have with Egypt, uh, Iran has with Egypt, and all the other Sunni countries as well, and the and and the, the, the you know the question of money so dominated the news this week because of the four hundred million dollars, mm-hmm. which I assume you want to talk about, mm-hmm. and the money, the corruption and the money coming from voluntary agencies, um, means that we have to keep the focus on these things, and our government and Congress has to call hearings, and we have to make sure what safeguards we have, or else we're just funding our enemies. Uh, by the way, just uh, uh, curious, because Israel was estimated that they destroyed 35 tunnels or so during the war in 2014. Do we, right. what, what figure are you given <laughs> when, when you're briefed on these matters? Are we, do That's we have, what day. And, uh, do we have uh, any clue how many <laughs> tunnels there are, or what the, what the estimate is? At, at of, of how many were destroyed then? No, it's how many tunnels are today, or, or what the estimate is about how many tunnels so are? The, the question is what, what, how you define it. On the other side of the border, there are many. The question is how many of them come under the border or across the border. That's what they're attempting to do all the time. Israel discovers them. Hopefully there are none now. Uh, is the expectation that they are, and the new technologies are being developed to uncover it? Uh, so the expectation is that there are, and there are constant attempts to to um, to do it. In fact, they say that at World Vision, uh, warehouses were used to store the equipment, and that the uh, mobile units were used to cover the entrances of the to the tunnels, to cover the the entrances for the newly built uh, tunnels, which is why you can't detect them necessarily necessarily from the uh, uh, from the air. Hmm. Um, you mentioned the four hundred million dollars. This is a, a transfer that happened between Israel and uh, between the United States and uh, and uh, to Iran. It was a deal from thirty-seven years ago where we canceled the deal, and then they gave him four hundred million dollars and one point three million, four hundred million and one point three billion in interest on the four hundred million dollars. Oh this is but the, the four hundred million was transferred in euros and dollars, which is exactly what terrorists facilitate funding of terrorist entities. And the question was why it was done in the haste that it was and there are a very important article about the fact that the new legislation had been passed by Congress and it was being implemented in during the month in which the transfer was to take place, and had they waited until the actual 
um, the laws, the law was implemented in terms of its restrictions on the trading and the the ability of uh, Hezbollah to access uh, funds. It was the Hezbollah International Financial Prevention or Financing Prevention Act of 2015, and uh, and the president signed it. But then you have this transfer that they wanted to do. And um, and the new law would prevent financing Hezbollah through the Lebanon banks. In fact, the Lebanese banks closed thousands of Hezbollah accounts shortly thereafter. And um, um, they and you know Nasrallah says, well, we don't need the banks to get money; we get money directly from Iran. Sure, if they have four hundred million dollars, because they give them about two hundred million dollars a year. We'll see this year if they gave them actually more. Um, so it, 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 the law banned any foreign bank from uh, from accessing U.S. financial system if they facilitate significant uh, financial transactions with Hezbollah. And there, and Israel was not involved in that at all. No, okay. no not at all. Um, the uh, Turkish President Erdogan appeared to give the United States an ultimatum demanding the extradition of a cleric he believes is behind the failed July 15th coup attempt. So two questions. Number one, can somebody who's been living in self-imposed exile in Pennsylvania for the last 17 years actually be the inspiration or the uh, practical leader of a coup in Turkey? And number two, should Erdogan be giving ultimatums to the United States? Well, this is uh, <coughs> internally in Turkey, and for Erdogan, this is uh, the, the key critical issue. Uh, Gulen was an imam who lives in upstate Pennsylvania, uh, in exile from uh, from uh, Turkey, uh, has a network of followers, and supposedly the, in the aftermath of the coup, which he blamed on Gulen followers, there was not much of a coup. Uh, except there was a lot of fight, more fighting than I think people realized here. The it, it, it occasioned a crackdown that clearly had to have had some preparation before because you can't sack and and arrest you know to, totals of fifty thousand, sixty thousand people on three, four days' notice, and the arrest began almost immediately, and they and they still continue. And they've, uh, you know, removed a lot of the leadership of the army, the judiciary, the media, closed media outlets, and arrested many people. So the the role of Gulen, uh, I mean, he is the the boogeyman, and they have always demanded that the United States extradite him, and they're going to have to make a case. And so far, the United States says that the evidence that has been presented to them does not make the case for extradition. An extradition, which could likely mean a, a death penalty for for Gulen, uh, means that you're going to have to raise it to a higher standard, and uh, the the Turks are really angry about it. And if you notice, the uh, Erdogan is going to Putin, as are many other leaders, mm-hmm. and the uh, you know his efforts to to mend his relationships around him, uh, but. But his uh, the ability to help in in regard to Syria, many other things, as, as a member of NATO, his military being depleted as it was is a is a significant factor. They're the second largest army in NATO, um, so the fight over Gulen is only beginning. We're going to see the the Turks really press on it. The relationship with Turkey and United States is important, and it's uh, as I said, not just because of NATO, but including that. We also saw this week, by the way, if for those who noticed uh, the pictures of Rouhani, the president of Iran, the president of uh, Azerbaijan, Aliyev, and Putin meeting, three people who have expressed 
great animosity and over time uh, about each other now are being driven together. And I have to say, I think the West is largely responsible for this, the vacuum we've left where they're looking to build new alliances. And if you know, I've warned about this on the show from years already. Russia, Iran, and who's the third? Azerbaijan. Azerbaijan. Which is threatened by both of them. And they're talking about a new north-south corridor between Azerbaijan and, and, uh, and Iran. There are 30 million Azeris living in Iran. And if there's to be a future change, they're going to be playing a critical role. And uh, when I was in Azerbaijan, you know, and know that the, from meetings with the leaders there about their attitudes towards a lot of the people, individuals, or countries, uh, this is, uh, these are acts of desperation, I think. And the West ignores should just watch this. And the West ignores it or doesn't understand the significance of it. They ignore too much of this exactly, and that's why I'm saying people should watch it. I warned about different areas uh, in advance, like it told, talked about South America a couple years ago, and now we see how far Iran has um, has expanded its reach, its outreach, and with very little resistance or or concern. Anybody here in the U.S. Congress, State Department, White House, that is concerned? Yeah. What is it? Who, who care about these yeah, things? Yeah, who is concerned? I can't yeah. hear you. There yes, are people in Congress no, certainly do. Because the change in the White House that's coming in January, I don't know if that's going to, to spur anybody in that building to pay m- more careful attention to situations like this. But Well, whenever you have a new administration, you hope there'll be people who will focus on different things in different ways. Um and, and, you know, this whole tendency to play down the dangers, you know, there was a study that came out showed Islamic State uh, killed 33,000 people, wounded 41,000, and taken 11,000 hostages over the last, I don't know, what, 12 or 14 years. This is the University of Maryland that, uh, that studied it and showed that 30 terrorist organizations that have um, declared allegiance to the Islamic State's caliphate, the, the documents that they recovered, that were uncovered in, Syria show they're still recruiting 500 to 1,000 people a month and can field an army of about 30,000. So, and, and then, uh, you know, the, the developments now between the fighting between the rebel groups and the fight over Aleppo, where you see the rebels now coming back because they've gotten probably new weapons from Saudi Arabia and Qatar, but there's certainly an influx of, of new weapons which enable them to uh, break through the siege that was around them. Uh, backed by the Russian, the, the siege was backed by the Russians and Hezbollah, Iran, etc., and certainly the Syrian army. And they say the Syrian army is is very tired and there's no enthusiasm, and they did not fight well against uh, this new thrust by the uh, by the rebels. The only problem is you never know who to root for in any of these fights. <laughs> That's for sure. Because they're no good guys anymore. Yeah. Uh, help me with this story. Switzerland's highest court has backed Iran in its oil pipeline conflict with Israel that's been ongoing since the Islamic Revolution in 1979. Tel Aviv is obliged to pay Tehran $1.1 billion plus interest in co- and uh, a half a million dollars in court costs. Uh, w- where does this stem from? What has been this dispute with between Israel and Iran? If this goes back to 79. I mean, I think, I think it goes back to, to the time of the revolution and the overthrow of the Shah that uh, Israel and Iran did a lot in terms of business deals, uh, oil. They pur- uh, Israel purchased think, most of, the, of its oil from Iran at the time, or the largest supplier of, of oil. 
and this was an outstanding debt that Israel said it didn't know because they didn't deliver, and they say that Israel didn't pay for what they delivered, that the court arbitrated and came down with this uh, judgment against Why Israel. does it end up in a Swiss court? Uh, because that's probably where they brought the case. It was, and I don't know, maybe the headquarters of the company would, was based there, but um, it's not I, unusual I, for people to go to Switzerland. I, for, yeah, I understand that. <laughs> I, I, I just never knew that an Israeli firm was building oil pipelines in the late 1960s in the Middle East. Well, Israel needed oil, and uh, you know there have been all sorts of plans of other oil uh, pipelines to, to Turkey to... When you know, it depends on how the relations are with different countries, and you have to keep switching as things change. But right. now, the biggest change that Israel will hopefully be an exporter of oil, not an importer of oil. And uh, you know, there was another big fine, not not of gas, but of oil. And hopefully, this will continue to help um, to help Israel. Uh, but we see Iran increasing. You know, they're saying that they expect to, to um, sign twenty-five billion dollars in oil deals. Uh, with foreign countries in the next uh, year or so. We, by the way, Salah, the head of the nuclear program in Iran, uh, made an important statement, got very little coverage, <coughs> except in Iran, that they're, built, they're, signing, they're pending an agreement that's pending between Iran and Russia, uh, waiting only for Putin and Rouhani's uh, signature authorization to build two nuclear plants. And if those who question about the, you know how significant the intent of Iran is, there's the answer. Unbelievable. Uh, observance of Tishabov begins tomorrow night. Malcolm, you know, we have an amazing ability as we look to the past to uh, put together national messages. But often when we are looking toward the future, it is more difficult for us to put together a national message and understand the national mission. What is your message as we approach the observance of Tisha B'Av. There's a Chinese saying that prophecy is very difficult, especially about the future. <laughs> so, and sometimes it's very difficult even to prophesize about the past, because if you see the distortions and misrepresentations, and anybody who questions why is the observance of Tisha B'Av, you have Yerushalayim, you have Harabayit, you know, people have said maybe it loses its significance, and all you have to do is look at the agenda at the UNESCO, the drive at the United Nations that we're going to see again coming back in September, where now they're talking about the agenda item is uh, the old city of Jerusalem and its walls, that when we commemorate the destruction of Jerusalem, we see those who continue to drive towards the destruction of Jerusalem. This is not past tense. It's today. Taking away the Jewish identity of every single site of Harabayas, of of the Kotel, of the Plaza, of, of Keber Rachel, and the international community ganging up, voting to, to strip them of their, through UNESCO, of their uh, the traditional Jewish names and Jewish heritage, and the people, you know, echoing the Palestinian position, there were no temples, nothing, which is, as I pointed out before, against Christianity and as well as Judaism. Mm. But when you're sitting there, don't think that you're talking about the past. This is what is happening. We are witnessing today and how it has been throughout the ages. When they wanted to take the focus off Jerusalem, they changed it to uh, uh, Philistia, to, which became Palestine, because they didn't want to have the name Judea. They wanted to always strip us of our right, because knowing that Jerusalem in Jewish hands is a refutation of the doctrine of more than 2,000 years, that we will disappear. And so it's more important now 
that we educate ourselves. What the, the committee on Harazasim has done is, is remarkable. What people are doing at Ir David and, and at the Minorata Kotel and rebuilding Jerusalem, we should never take it for granted. And when you sit and you read the keynotes, you will see how applicable so often the message is to today. And the third keynote that deals supposedly with the, the with worms, the, the first keynote that doesn't deal with uh, Yerushalayim, right. uh, is supposedly an allusion to the uh, Jews of worms, because when the Jews went back to Yerushalayim they, and asked them to come return with them, they said, you have your great Jerusalem there, we have our little Jerusalem here. Mm-hmm. And I think it's an important message for all of us when we see what's going on to Jewish communities around the world, and the intent and the and the the goals, and even an international community that can unite against Jerusalem, against the Jewish connection to Jerusalem, tells us why this Tisha B'Av is as important as ever. Uh, no question about it. Uh, an easy fast to you. I assume we will so speak uh, Erev Shabbos Nachamu, am I, I right? Will. Which will be two and ba'av. And we will have only positive messages and news then. Well, obviously, it's two ba'av. We have to. Right. Uh, thank you so much. Malcolm Holmline is Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. Joins us for a Friday morning Erev Shabbos Chazon here at JM and the M. And yes, next Friday is two ba'av. It is Erev Shabbos Nachamu, and we do plan on having a weekly update at 740 Eastern Time.